Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Black Ball. Black, black, black Ball. Black, 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 black Ball. Black, 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 black Ball. Black, 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 black Ball. What is up, everybody? My name is James D. Fiore, and this is Blackball. I thought it would be fitting to put the Beasts of England soundtrack uh, from George Orwell's Animal Farm there. Uh, one, because it's copyright free, <laughs> and I won't get busted for using it. And the second is because I have been describing the Trudeau government's quest to be the most Orwellian Western government on the planet through their Bill C-10, Bill C-11, and Bill C-18 um, as, as the most Orwellian example I can think of. And um, I, there are lots of people, and myself included, I'm not going to lie, who I have a hard time wrapping my head around this bill for so many different reasons. Um, and I find that the fallback uh, excuse for this government is always about Canadian content. But really, the problem might be how Canadian content is defined. So in order to help me sort of weed through all of these different types of scenarios, uh, I have two guests today. Um, one is a professor from the University of Ottawa, and his name is Michael Geist. And uh, hey, Michael, how you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Um, and I think I'm just going to like, because he's here, uh, I hope that's okay with everybody. Um, Washington Post columnist, JJ McCullough is also here. Welcome gentlemen to the show. How are you guys? Hey, not too bad. Yeah, doing well. Uh, Michael, I'm going to start with you. Um, why is it that so many people have so much trouble trying to figure out what the government is doing here? And is that intentional? It's a, it's a good place to start. I, I think... I guess I'd say that that part of the reason is that what the government says it wants to do and what the legislation actually does are two different things. So the government says that it wants to bring the large Internet streaming services, the Netflix and Disney's of the world, into the Canadian broadcast system. I think there's a reasonable debate to be had around those issues about the true state of film and TV production in Canada right now and whether there's a, a concern and an emergency taking place. But regardless, I mean, that, that certainly was their stated objective. 
And then along the way, the government from the last bill, and then it's carried over into this bill, expanded the scope really of this legislation to include user content. And by moving into that world, essentially going from purely large curated services to these uncurated services where we see uh, so many Canadians and so many others creating, and the prospect that that is brought into the ambit of regulation, I think is what has caused considerable amount of concern and where there have been at times real debates as to what the true intent or at least the true effect of the legislation would be. Yeah. And, and there seems to be like, what, how do you define Canadian content? We've talked about this before, but people don't seem to understand that Canadian content doesn't sound what it means, uh, what, what it's in, you know, not what it's intended to sound like because it's intended to, to, to be something specific. But we tend to think of Canadian content as, you know, uh, if the production company is owned by Canadian or if the content itself is Canadian centric and culturally relevant. But how does the government actually define what Canadian content is? Yeah, it's another good place to, to, to really start and take the conversation a bit. And and. I think that you know, for promoters or supporters of the CanCon system, including the government, have tended to frame it largely around what they would describe as promoting Canadian stories. We've actually heard this a lot during hearings on the bill that have taken place over the last couple of weeks, where there are those who are supportive of this legislation who will say, we simply won't get Canadian stories if we don't have this kind of legislation in place. I think part of the problem with that position is that once you start drilling down into what this system of CanCon actually means, it turns out that it didn't have to be a Canadian story at all. And in fact, some of the supporters have acknowledged that, yeah, it's true, uh, the, the, the Canadian content rules don't require a Canadian story. In fact, in some ways, CanCon rules are trying to do several things, and I don't know that they do any of them very well. There's an element of so-called telling Canadian stories, but in the kind of tick box exercise that exists that seek to identify what counts as Canadian content, oftentimes it has very little to do with what we might define as a Canadian story. Sometimes it's about economics, saying that we want to ensure that more Canadians are employed in film and television production. But there too, the CanCon rules don't really work very well because we've seen a huge proliferation of employment in the area. It's record amounts of people working in the sector but oftentimes they work on productions that don't count. And then the third area is intellectual property ownership. It's got to be owned by Canadians. And the problem there is it's pretty tough to bring in services like Netflix and Disney and say, well, you've got to pay into the system, but you can't actually own anything that you've paid for. <laughs> Which is awesome and totally frustrating. Um, it also, I, JJ, I wanted to have you on the show as well um, because I really enjoy... Um, I really enjoy your tweets on the subject. I'm just going to go through a couple of them right now. I don't often post overtly opinionated content on my YouTube channel because it is not a commentary channel that I'm sensitive to the diversity of my audience. But my last two videos bashing C11 have gotten amazing response. No one on the left, right, or center supports this bill. You've been following this bill and, and, and uh, the stories that have been written by it. I, I mean, I, I feel the same way that you do. It, it, it's like our first sort of unifying force is how much most people hate this bill. Yeah. Um, what is, I mean, Michael has, uh, has sort of outlined, uh, sort of outlined sort of how the policy interacts with some of the rules or whatever. As a YouTuber, as a person who puts content out 
on a regular basis and, and you're a popular guy as well. What kind of fears does or do you have um, if this bill comes if this bill passes? Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of fear. And I think that uh, probably the defining fear is just the fear of uncertainty. There is a lot of ambiguity as to how a sort of how a bill that aspires to do the things that this bill claims that it wants to do, you know, such as elevate uh, Canadian content on a platform like YouTube, improve the quote unquote discoverability of uh, <clears throat> of Canadian content on a platform like YouTube. And there also is like some weird language as well that the CRTC in the future will have a mandate to uh, sort of stipulate the uh, sort of the breakdown of different genres of content, which is a sort of giant question mark as well. So I think the fear is basically that, you know, YouTube has been a tremendously successful 17 year experiment for uh, thousands of Canadians like me who have made a living creating YouTube content. And the idea that government is now just going to kind of intrude into this space, impose a bunch of new rules and regulations that could possibly dramatically affect the, uh, the livelihoods and business model of people like me who have grown up understanding YouTube in one particular way, but now we're going to have to deal with this brand new sort of like newly regulated YouTube. And YouTube is not an easy platform to work for at the best of times. You know, there's a lot of sort of mysterious under the hood stuff that goes on in how YouTube chooses to promote or elevate or, you know, suppress various forms of content on the platform. You know, the concept of being uh, buried as a YouTuber is something that a lot of YouTubers are well familiar with. You know, YouTubers tear their hair out all the time, not quite understanding why a video is popular or a flop you know, even though they feel like maybe they've been doing everything right. And so the idea that now there's going to be this added layer of ambiguity once sort of the CRTC starts regulating the platform as well and starts, you know, in theory, putting its finger on the scale in order to improve, you know, the discoverability of, of Canadian content, whatever that is interpreted or redefined to mean. It's uh, no, it's 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 a it's a time of, of great uh, nervousness and, and worry for a lot of Canadian YouTubers of whom there are no shortage. And that's like the other important point. There is no problem here in terms of not enough Canadian content as most normal people would define it on YouTube. There are uh, over a hundred Canadian YouTubers that have more than 3.5 million subscribers. You know, this has been a tremendous, highly successful growth industry for Canadian creators of all walks of life, of all genres of content. And so the idea that this is just a classic example of government trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist. Yeah, Michael, I've heard you say similar things. Um, and uh, I'm reminded of a Simpsons quote, because that's how my brain works, where um, where Homer's like, to alcohol, the cause of and solution to all of life problems. I feel that way about algorithms. I, I, I feel like we, we, are, we are so enamored with this idea that AI were, you know, a, a, a sort of beta version of AI, or whatever you want to call it, is telling us what we like like the fashion industry, the way the fashion industry dictates the taste and doesn't ask us what we think they should make us wear, they tell us this is what's cool. I am, I have such a big problem with that. I feel like algorithms are really the only thing I ever want to talk about. And I just want to, like on Twitter, I have turned off the algorithm on my newsfeed and I get the newest. I'm totally fine with that because if I want to find something, I'll seek it out. Um, Michael, is there a, is there, um, a, a contingent of MPs who are critics of this bill who are speaking about algorithms in the same way that I am, but we're lettered, hopefully. It's certainly an issue that's come up. And 
It's it's one of those issues actually where you see people on both sides. On the one hand, the committee's been assured that this bill won't allow the CRTC to touch algorithms. And on the other hand, they've had witnesses that appear before a committee that say the CRTC must get involved in some of these algorithmic choices, that we can't allow uh, a YouTube or a TikTok to be making these kinds of decisions. Or if they are, we should recognize that those algorithms are making those kinds of choices and that they would argue that it's perfectly acceptable to have the CRTC make some of those choices instead. I have to say that that I thought that one of the person, people who's made the most amount of sense on this issue, she appeared before committee, she came on my podcast actually as well, is Morgan Fortier, um, who is one of Canada's most successful YouTube, runs one of Canada's most successful YouTube companies, um, where they've got hundreds of millions of view, uh, billions of views and uh, tens of millions of subscribers. And, you know, the, her view was that the, these algorithmic issues or this discussion really misses so much of the point that, in fact, the kind of data that's used is widely accepted by the branding community, by advertisers, by many others. And so the idea that we're somehow even engaged in a debate as to whether this counts for anything or not uh, really kind of misses the reality that whole sectors of the economy have built themselves up around some of these issues. And while I think there's definitely room for greater transparency around the algorithmic choices that these companies are making, I think that, frankly, not necessarily purely from a YouTube perspective, but more broadly for social media and others, where there are clear privacy and data governance implications around some of these choices. And we would do well, I think, to have a better understanding about how some of those choices are made. That's a far cry from effectively saying that a government regulator like the CRTC can somehow do it better. I don't think there's there's really any evidence to suggest that they can or, as you were just highlighting, that there's really a problem here worth fixing. Just quickly, you know, the, the CRTC chair, Ian Scott, who confirmed that the bill does include the power to regulate over these issues, was it pains to say, don't worry, I'm not really going to do very much. We just want to make sure that someone who wants to find Canadian content uh, can do so on even a service like a Netflix. And I was really tempted to ask whether or not he even has a Netflix subscription because <laughs> it's not terribly difficult yeah. to type the word Canada or Canadian into the service and you're presented with a whole menu of that content. So it comes back to that question, you know, what is the problem on some, especially around discoverability that, that the government is trying to solve? Is it? Because I can see nodding. No, I mean, no, I mean well, it's, it's absolutely the yeah, case, right? Like, I mean, like the fact is, like, I can only speak to YouTube because that's my realm of 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 uh, of, of work. But uh, but like I said, you know, some in in the some of the most successful Canadian celebrities in the world right now, certainly in the eyes of young people, are YouTubers, right? There is no shortage of tremendous success stories that have arisen through this medium. Um, and have achieved just great, tremendous things. And they've made all sorts of content, right? Like I am a YouTuber who actually does tell like overtly Canadian stories. I've made videos about Canadian uh, <laughs> history and politics and, you know, food and pop culture and all sorts of things. And, you know, I have over 750,000 subscribers, right? Like I have, I'm a case study. And like, I don't like to use myself too much as, as an example because that sort of seems somewhat self-indulgent. But like, I'm a case study of a guy who just in an unregulated medium said, I'm going to talk about Canadian stuff 
and I'm going to sort of sink or swim on that. And I've been tremendously successful. This is how I make my living. This is how I make my income. There have been Canadians who have made less overtly Canadian content than I do. You know, people that have been in the fitness realm or the do-it-yourself realm or, you know, cooking or video game reviews or movie reviews or whatever, and have been tremendously successful too. So it's just, it's, when I was at the committee uh, last week and, you know, I was hearing sort of the testimony of some of those sort of the established uh, interests, you know, they all speak as if this is some sort of great crisis of content or even like a crisis of, of national sovereignty or cultural integrity. Like, you know, that the, the nation is sort of collapsing in the face of these, you know, evil American tech giants. And I just think there's just very little evidence to support that. I mean, maybe there's there's like a corporate uh, anxiety that, you know, some of the old legacy media worries that they're losing the ground game to new media like uh, like youtube but you know beyond that beyond just a kind of like naked appeal to like corporate self-interest and sort of a loss of profits and a loss loss of eyeballs like there's really no case to be made and i think that's why it has proven to be such a enormously unpersuasive bill to the vast majority of, of Canadians who are even aware of it. You know, when I when I posted videos or write articles about it, it is striking to me. I'm like, I'm seen as a somewhat controversial figure, but never in my life have I had uh, a take that has been so universally sympathized with than my anti-C11 take. Yeah, if I could just... Well, I've heard just you say almost anything that... Yeah, please go, yeah. Please. Yeah, no, I just wanted to respond to a couple of things JJ said, which I think is uh, absolutely right. First, I don't, this is not a partisan or ought not to be a partisan issue in terms of left or right. And so I think the kind of response that he's received is reflective of that. You know, there are, there are YouTubers, there are TikTokers, there are people creating content of all sorts that are on the left and that they're on the right. And what brings them together is this view in many ways that there is, that this is just an inappropriate in uh, attempt by the government to get directly involved in this kind of regulation. Again, we're talking specifically around this question of user content regulation because it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But I have to say that his comment about some of the legacy media, JJ's comment there, really strikes a chord with with some of the things that the committee's heard. You know, to me, one of the most astonishing things that, that we've heard doesn't involve user content. It involved Bell coming before committee and saying that their solution to solve the CanCon issue was to ensure that they had better access to cheap U.S. content and calling on the government to insert provisions in the law that would better guarantee that they could get that cheap U.S. content, which they could then fill up their programming schedule with uh, as a way to monetize that. And they said that would then help fund CanCon. You know, what's striking is just there's crickets from the various groups that say that they're all about producing more Canadian content. And yet when the country's largest broadcaster gets up there and says, well, what we really need is more U.S. content, they seemingly have nothing to say. Yeah, I saw that. I think um, it was from that article from the report. Uh, Bill C-11 will ensure that the streamers for the first time start to the, their fair share. Uh, right away, I'm just like fuck this article <laughs> like because wasn't it you I'm, I'm not even going to read the rest because because wasn't it because it says basically what you just said but wasn't it you michael that said um the last time you were on the show that if they like never already contributes how many millions of dollars to our economy why can't they just this, designate you know, that money to cancon like that's why been, do we need that's to change been a everything? huge part of the story yeah, you know what? You're absolutely right. That's been a big part of the story. We've had a number of groups, including the largest entertainment union in the country, 
talk about the fact that it's the studios, U.S. studios and streamers that are responsible for more than half the employment right now in film and TV production in Canada, contributing billions of dollars. Disney had said, has said that uh, before this committee, that Canada is top four worldwide for where they produce. Netflix has said Canada is top three worldwide where they produce. And Netflix talked about spending more than three billion billion dollars in Canada on production and licensing since they entered into the market. It is pretty tough to make the case that there's a significant problem when you've got streamers talking about billions of dollars being invested in the country and somehow the government says, well, that's not quite enough. Yeah, Michael Geist, I know you have to go, uh, but thank you for joining us. Uh, I really appreciate your your you know, you're basically your wisdom on this matter. Like my Yoda when it comes to this kind of shit. So I appreciate that. And uh, thank you. We'll have you back soon. Thanks, Michael. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Take care. Thank you. Um, from, from a content producer perspective, what would change? Like, what is worst case scenario for in your position? You have 750,000 subscribers. This is how you make your living. Uh, I know you write a column for the Wash House, but I'm pretty sure if you only had that job, you'd be below the poverty line because it's, <laughs> it's media. <laughs> right? That's how it's they done these days. Well. I, I won't. I won't. Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just, that, but yeah, I'm just, I know <laughs> it's, not, it's not the Toronto Star. I keep on getting confused. Um, but uh, but but how? What is the worst case scenario for your position on what you're doing now and what it could turn turn into if all of these eleven and C eighteen actually pass? Yeah. So I mean, I think, and people have pointed this out to me, is that I actually might be arguing against my own interests here because, as I said earlier, I actually do produce content that I think is quite overtly Canadian by any meaningful definition. You know, I do make a lot of videos that talk explicitly about Canadian things, politics and history and so on. And, and I'm obviously a Canadian and I don't have a sort of cast of other people involved with my uh, with my production whose whose national credentials could be called into question. So but I worry very much for other creators and I'm doing this you know, mostly I'm sort of motivated by their interests more than I think my own self-interest, which is to say that like, if the worst case scenario happens for like, say if we just imagine a, a Canadian YouTuber who does videos about Thai food recipes, and there is such a Canadian YouTuber, right? So like, say like, you know, she makes videos about Thai food recipes, and then sort of the CRTC comes along and sort of says, well, it's lovely that you're making these, these cooking videos that are enjoyed by, you know, millions of people who are in the world, but we've decided that that's not Canadian enough to be promoted by this new kind of algorithm that we're going to bring in. So we are going to like suppress the discoverability of your content, which is not Canadian enough. And we're going to elevate the content of somebody whose content is Canadian enough, say JJ, right? Or say the CBC might even be a better example or CTV or global or one of these old guard mm -hmm. media institutions that knows how to play the CanCon game that knows how to get Canadian content certified, you know, to actually be, and this is actually literally the term they use, be to be certified as officially Canadian, you know, and then that content gets boosted. That content is at the top of your, uh, at the top of your page when you log into youtube.com, you know, you suddenly see all of this, uh, you know, properly accredited Canadian content. And then when you so go to search for something, uh, that accredited content, uh, floods to the top and then the other content sort of floods to the bottom and it's much harder to discover organically. And then for say for this theoretical Thai food uh, channel, 
uh, she suddenly discovers that her views are going way down, her revenues are going way down, and that she's struggling to make a living in a platform that has now been rigged to promote certain types of content over others. And I think that's really the doomsday scenario for a lot of creators. And when I talk to creators, that's what they say. They worry a great deal that their content is not going to be seen as Canadian enough to be boosted by whatever regime the CRTC brings in to determine, you know, the uh, basically the patriotic... Uh, credentials of, of of the work that you're making like i think that there's a lot of creators who could be very as i said earlier right like we already live under the uncertainty of youtube's own algorithm which can be very fussy and difficult to predict so the yeah. idea of now having to navigate an entirely new uh, algorithm that has some sort of patriotic greater good as it's motivating uh, uh you know sort of factor that's uh that's really troubling i think for a lot of creators and we're alone on this as far as Western nations go. Yes. There is not another Western country who has like a CRTC type thing. The FCC in the United States isn't quite like the CRTC, right? They're more about, they're not content driven. They're decency driven, aren't they, for lack of better words? Yeah, and it's, and it's yeah, it, it isn't content driven. Although it is interesting that there actually is a, uh, is a, is a case study uh, as far as this goes. Like um, the Congress passed a rule um, or a law, I should say, some time ago. Uh, regarding how uh, online content can be uh, sort of promoted to youth and uh, to young people, like to children, and the role of sort of okay. children in online video content. So to this day, every time I go to upload a video, I have to click a little button that says there are no minors in this video and this video is not being marketed yeah. to, to children, right? So like that's kind of like that's a right. permanent aspect of, of sort of the YouTube infrastructure that is a result of government intervention. It's obviously not that severe. It hasn't impacted my bottom line. It has impacted the bottom line of, of, of creators who previously worked with sort of child-centric content. But the point is, is that I often see, and I often see people sort of say like, well, this seems too ambitious. This could not actually be done. Like practically this would be impossible to implement but I, I'm, I'm very skeptical of that. I think that we already have a precedent, as I just cited, in which YouTube has been forced under penalty of law to introduce some sort of new sorting mechanism for determining the, the content. Um, every time you go to upload a video, you also have to, like, you know, self-certify uh, that there's no sex or violence or, you know, blah, 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 right? That's mostly done for the benefit of advertisers, but you do have to self-certify. And that if YouTube uh, discovers that you're lying on those self-certifications, there are consequences for your channel as well. It makes it harder for you to get uh, approved for advertisements, which then hurts your bottom line and so forth. So I think like it's worth taking this kind of stuff seriously because it could be implemented. Well, it, it, and presumably it will be implemented if this, if this law is passed. And I do think it will, <clears throat> I mean, I've seen no reason to believe that it will not um, it will not involve the content of the videos in addition to merely the nationality of the person that's making it. We there are there is language in Bill C eleven that makes reference to as I said earlier uh, the CRTC's mandate to promote certain genres of video, which I think is very troubling. And there is also sort of like a lot yeah. of kind of politically correct sort of sensibilities in the bill as well that makes it seem pretty clear to me that the video or that the that the government imagines this regulation as at least being partially motivated by ideological or political motives to present certain kinds of content that they view as being more diverse or more uh, healthy for the, the citizenry in some way. So yeah, there's there's a great deal of things to be uh, legitimately very worried about. That's part of like I didn't realize that I was so conservative came to my views on the CRTC. I I, I just 
didn't follow CRTC and that stuff until I started podcasting a couple of years ago. And then I was like, why are we doing this? Why, why, why are yeah, we so <clears throat> afraid, afraid that our citizens will be culturally bankrupt by not seeing what the latest French harpist from Quebec City is doing? Like, grand system. <laughs> yeah, there we go. That's that's what the grand system should be called. Uh, like that's because I'm like, we we are. They are saying that we're trying to like continue to feed our grant system so artists create content and 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 our culture will be protected yeah it reminds me of um put america first that trump legislation yeah. i believe it was that where it was like america first i think it was it it feels like nationalism or something like i, I don't, oh, don't know why we're so afraid let us choose our own shit like you know like yeah if they force speed it, by the way, not going to be all of a sudden be like, oh, it is good. Re, re, uh, the littlest hobo is exactly what I need. Like no one is. Saying <laughs> it. No, I mean, like it's been it's been a tremendous failure, right? Like the the CRTC has been and the sort of CanCon regime has been something that the federal government has been trying to fix the country with for I don't know, like 50, 60 years or so. And they have remarkably little to show for it. I mean, obviously, you do have your isolated case study of a successful Canadian television show or movie here or there. But the vast majority of them have been enormous flops. Right. You know, the vast majority of Canadians have wanted to consume American media or, you know, other international media because it's generally better or because it is uh, not made with this kind of narrow nationalistic agenda. It's made from the premise of let's make something that's entertaining and accessible to the broadest possible audience. I think that's basically how YouTubers have made Canadian YouTubers have made success for themselves as well. They don't go into it thinking like what is in the patriotic greatest good to make? They think, no, what do people want to watch and what could be broadly accessible? Yeah. Not they have have a very sort of like you know evil american kind of mindset in that way and they're thinking in a kind of capitalistic way like what does my audience want and not only like what do the canadian audience want but can i make uh content that is universal enough that perhaps it can have an international appeal as well and that's why i think you get a lot of successful canadian youtubers who talk about stuff like uh, like cooking or fitness or video games or stuff like that that's not kind of in some sort of narrowly nationalistic box the you know the sort of the the tragedy and the cynicism that has always sort of underlined the, the CanCon regime is that you have some creators in this country, you know, uh, musicians and uh, film directors and TV stars and actors and writers and so forth, who just feel entitled to success. Like they feel that they want to be successful movie or film or musician makers and that they somehow feel that if they cannot be successful in a free market, it is somehow government's job to rush to their rescue with bailouts and a rigged uh, airwaves system to promote their content over others. And that's unfortunately what I think is often really kind of driving this at the end of the day. You look at these kind of lobby groups that have been testifying at committee and they are representing, in many cases, like people that are just not that successful in the creative realm, people that cannot produce content that is popular on its own merits, that does not have a natural audience. And yet they nevertheless feel entitled to success. And I just really have never understood 
why it is the job of taxpayers to subsidize somebody's failed artistic creative dream. Nobody else gets those kind of bailouts, or at least they shouldn't. I mean, I know that there are bailouts and subsidies for all sorts of failed industries in this country. But I mean, that really riles me. And I think it riles a lot of people that have in, in certainly in my space, in the YouTube space, that have been successful making content that is broadly popular with Canadians and an international audience. And the idea that somehow now we are the people that need to be punished in order to prop up the failures of, of other people who perhaps aren't quite as savvy in uh, in producing content that is that is broadly popular or resonant with audiences. I completely agree with everything you said. And I've been and <laughs> since I've been trying to educate myself on this stuff, um, I've been learning. Uh, so I was I told a story in a podcast, I think, two weeks ago, and it's a true story. I was living in the annex in Toronto and neighbor was this woman and her her uh boyfriend or whatever played the harp and got like 85 grand in a grant to, to make a harp album, which by the way <laughs> <laughs> like fucking 85 grand yeah. to and literally he just played the harp there was no other instrumentation i don't know whatever anyways so funny and like a year goes by or something uh, you'd think it would take a harpist like a few days to cut a harp album but i guess not and it, when it went on sale because i was living beside this couple i guess for like three and a half years before i left uh, um a couple months before i left because i moved away how much how many albums did you sell and he's like i ah, like 60. <laughs> so, so we had 85 grand to give this man a uh enough money to make his harp album and and by the way a male harp player just seems weird but anyways um he sold like 60 copies which works out to what like 1400 dollars or something like that a copy yeah. We don't do it's, it it's, right. No, it's, right. It's, Whatever it is that we're doing, you know. Go ahead. It's 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 like it's it's offensive on on multiple levels, right? Like because it's not, you know, there's nothing more validating and empowering, and you know, gratifying like as a creator to realize that you are successful and that you are popular and that what you are making is resonant with an audience, right? It's a tremendous feeling. It's what we as creators all all live for. Right. And the idea that I just feel like it would be a kind of just such a hollow thing to be so heavily subsidized and to create a product that ultimately just still fails. Right. Like to have government holding your hand all the way along, you know, propping you up with with a rigged, you know, airwaves or, you know, discoverability or whatever, giving you all this money. And then your product still doesn't succeed. And it's kind of like, well, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean to be propped up by government and still be rejected by the public that you ostensibly are right. in this business to serve in some way? Like, it's it's it just seems like a very hollow sort of victory. And in the YouTube context, I think it could actually backfire. And actually, people, other YouTubers have have observed this as well that if you promote content that people don't want to watch, if this sort of like pops up in your feed, your subscription feed, your discoverability tab, your searches and so forth, it can provoke like a great deal of backlash where I can imagine a scenario in which people start, you know, angrily commenting, why is this always in my feed? Why are YouTube trying to make me watch this video? I don't want to see this. <laughs> yeah. And they get angry and cross and crabby, you know, and I'm sure we can all think of examples in which this has happened in the television realm. Like I remember when I was in, when I was in university, there was this show that the CBC made called Arctic Air. And it was about like a uh, like an airline in the Northwest Territories, you know, a great sort of Canadian story. And there was like billboards for it everywhere. Mm. And it was like constantly being advertised. And of course, nobody watched the show and it failed after like a season. And then they had a big fire sale. I remember in Vancouver actually of selling all of the props and like it became a joke. And I felt like, you know, my empathetic side felt bad for the people involved in making that show. 
you know, that the CBC had kind of led them to believe that this heavily subsidized, heavily government promoted cultural product might actually be a hit, but it wasn't. It was a phony kind of simulacrum of success. And that just seems to me like that would be really upsetting and, and would just kind of make you bitter and feel like disliked and rejected by the public. So I, I just have always thought that government has no business being in the creative realm at all, in the artistic realm. It's just it's just wrong on every level, morally as well as, uh, you know, materially. Yeah, you know, it's funny because like, you ever train 48? Remember that show? <laughs> no. The entire show took place in like, what was so, yeah, right. It was supposed to take place in like a, like a go train cart. I don't know how long it was on air for, but that was completely publicly funded and everyone just made fun of it. Like it was just the yeah. worst show on television. You know, shit creaks happen sometimes, right? Like, and, and, and you should give props to the Canadian shows, but the weird is that the CRTC, which by the way, isn't mandated to do anything with the digital space in their name itself. They are not, yeah. you know, uh, they, they weren't intended. It didn't exist. Um, and so in attempt to actually modernize, which would probably be something like taking traditional legacy media on television and trying to make it seem more like internet, they're taking the internet and they're trying to make it seem more like legacy television. Yeah. Like they're, taking I mean, it's away, like... They're, they're basically taking the best thing about the internet and they're just trying to water that part of, you know. You know, like I am sympathetic to a point with with legacy media's complaint that, you know, they have to play by these CanCon uh, broadcasting rules. You know, they have to air these quotas of Canadian content. They have to pay into, you know, the Canadian, you know, I don't know, the media subsidy fund or whatever in order to promote the creation of the Arctic airs of the world. Right. And they resent that. They resent that new media doesn't have to do that. And I think that's fair to a point, but to me, the logical solution would be to just lessen the regulation on legacy media. You know, if legacy media just wants to do right. nothing like sort of what the professor said and, and, you know, air American shows all day, I think that should be their right, right? Like, I don't see why this isn't an opportunity to realize that the old regulation model has failed. It has not achieved its stated aims. It has not created this great renaissance of Canadian cultural products. It has done just the opposite. And uh, and that this is obviously going to fail equally hard if we try to apply it to uh, to digital media. So I don't understand why this isn't just a moment to just kind of like, you know, just kind of declare the experiment failed, you know, dramatically lessen the powers of the CRTC rather than expand them and try to enter a new era of Canadian content that is more market driven and is more trusting of consumers to make their own choice and to create a Canadian cultural uh, life that is more organic and, and natural. Because we know when Canadians are left to their own devices, Canadians will become successful regardless. It's not like that Canadian content has to be forced. I think that YouTube has shown that Canadians are more than capable of making very successful, very audience engaging content when they're not told what precisely they have to make, or they're not told that they have to dance to a certain government tune in order to be certified as Canadian enough. Right. I think that this is a it's just such a failed moment. And it's really reflects it reflects two things. It reflects like just the limited imagination of government and sort of the Ottawa political class and regulatory class in uh, in 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 general. And it, it reflects sort of just the power of special interests over the lawmaking process, the degree to which 
when government, uh, you know, gets out of bed and says, what should our digital strategy be? You know, the voices they listen to are these entrenched kind of old guard media lobbyists who have been in bed with the government for so long, who are propped up by the government, who know nothing except for an ultra regulatory environment that is created on their own terms. And then at the end of the day, these are the people that are ultimately determining what government's priorities are and what kind of laws are written or not written. And I think, you know, when I was at committee, you saw that full in full uh, in full flower. I was the only witness that opposed uh, that opposed this bill, and everybody else was in some ways reflective of of sort of uh, entrenched uh, interest groups who were, of course, all for it because they're used to living in a system where, of course, laws are written for their benefit. Who else would they be written for? Yeah, no, exactly. I, I I've said this before, but I've never in twenty years that I've been doing independent stuff with with a bunch of failures, some successes, or whatever. I never once went, am I going to get some free money to fund this shit? <laughs> I, I never <laughs> even thought of it. I never thought of trying to work the grand system ever. I was like, it was just this mysterious no. thing in the background that existed. But I, you know, I, I didn't, it was a political reason. I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to stand on my own two feet. I just never even thought of it. Like, it just didn't cross my mind. I just wanted to do it myself. And, and I knew it existed. And it just... You know, it made me kind of. I, I asked Nathaniel Erskine Smith, the, the MP, the Liberal MP for the beaches, and I'm like, level with me. <laughs> if the CRTC, if the building and all its people just disappeared overnight, <laughs> it might be a lot better for all of us. <laughs> it's like, maybe. <laughs> um, and it doesn't help Absolutely. that you put a telecom CEO, you know, as the chair of the CRTC. Like, what yeah. horse they're going to like side with legacy media? And make life's life harder for us. But um, yeah. what are you doing now? Um, where can people find you? Um, and 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 just you know, let them know what you're up to, and 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 yeah, and where they can find you, and where they can find your content. Yeah. So I mean, as I've alluded to, I am a I'm a YouTuber. I make a video for YouTube.com uh, every single Saturday. If you just type in JJ McCullough. You'll find my channel, or if McCullough is too complicated, you can just type in JJ Canada, and I will pop up because I'm uh, I'm one of the big shots in sort of the Canadian uh, in the Canadian space again without any government uh, propping up at all. And then I also do write a a weekly column on Canadian politics for the uh, Washington Post, so I'm part of the uh, global opinions section in which they get uh, folks from around the world to comment on the politics of their country. So those are basically my two. Uh, my two big contributions and, to the uh, Canadian conversation. And for 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 those who don't know, um, uh, JJ is a really really good, strong writer. He's, he's one of the best essayists I think that we have in the, in our country. He's I, I think that's an amazing gig that you have. Um, I read you Thank all you. the time, and um, I you know it's funny because people are familiar. My audience seems to be familiar with you. Uh, first of all, one person was like, "Tell him to say a boot," because apparently you say it like the way that. Canadians say it. I, I don't you know. Like, don't get mad. <laughs> Do you say it like it's that? It's a little offensive, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> the person saying it was, was Canadian as well. That helps. Raw. <laughs> are you really offended by that? I don't know. I mean, it gets a little tiresome. I think sometimes when people are just like making fun of the way you talk, right? I mean, it's like be being made fun of the way you look, right? I like, don't think I like... didn't hear it. I heard you say the one. In fact, I got to tell you, I've never heard any Canadian say a boot my entire life. Well, a lot of Canadians, I, I, well, I mean, I, but see, I disagree with that. I think a lot of Canadians do say it. And a lot of Canadians are just somewhat in denial about just like how strong their accents are. Right. And it's because people make fun of me oh. for doing it that I actually hear it a lot more in other people because it makes me a little. I think he uh, was bus busting your balls in a playful way. I think he I think well, what he was saying is that because I'm pretty sure he's a fan of yours. 
I'm pretty sure he's a fan wow. of yours. And, and I think no, he's just being mean I'm sorry, man. It's I fine. apologize. On behalf of Acosta in the comments, I apologize. <laughs> it's fine. But <laughs> no, I mean, McCullough, like, thanks uh, for joining my... us, man. I really appreciate it. Mm. Oh, thank you ahead. for having go me. Ahead. It was go a great conversation. Go ahead. Go ahead. I don't, I'm not... Did you want to continue that last thought there? Because I wasn't no, no, no. trying to kick you off. No, I was just saying, check out my YouTube channel. I've got lots of fun videos. Yeah, well, well, please do. And uh, again, he's a great writer. Check him out on the Washington Post where he writes the Canadian politics column. And JJ McCullough, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Have a good day. Uh, thought so. <laughs> for, for, making, uh, <clears throat> for making JJ, uh, you know, a little uncomfortable. Now, I, I, I think uh, I, I probably burned the context a little bit there. But it's fascinating to hear um, an academic like Michael Geist and then an actual entertainer like uh, talk about this stuff um because it's literally coming and uh you know we're going to continue to talk about it i have uh a sir leo mukakis i think pronounce his last name coming up at the end of the about it he's a conservative senator who's who made one of the best speeches ever um when he was when the senate was debating bill c10 um before, uh, last year and it was brilliant. And everything that he was saying is is the same thing that Michael Geist was saying, and the same thing that Paul was saying. And I think it's just really important uh, for people to to pay attention to this stuff. They are trying to do this underhand uh, government by uh, asking the Senate to study the bill at the same time that the House is, um, so that it can be fast tracked. Uh, they are also limiting study time, and they're also not certain details of the bill to be re- revealed it, until after it receives royal assent uh, from the Senate. So, this, this is uh, another one of those attempts by the Trudeau to just be as, you know, fearless and Orwellian as this we can be. I don't understand, uh, you know, the the gain of it at all, except possibly to to hold on to votes in Quebec. Um, that is another thing that I learned from Michael Geist because a lot of these organizations that rely on this grant program are from Quebec. So we'll see what happens. Uh, tomorrow on Blackballed, I have Rasta Phil. Uh, Rasta Phil, I met 10 years ago and we just hit it off. Um, I think it was weed that made us hit off, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, but his, it, and the reason why I say this is because I, I find it really interesting when. Uh, a, a person who has a celebrity as one of their close friends um, doesn't use that friendship to uh, to get work, but that friendship ends up through almost no fault of his own to receive work. So in other words, people come up to him and offer him stuff because his best friend is Mark Wahlberg. Um, so I, I, he's one of the most interesting cats. He's an actor. He's do, doing a movie right now with Halle Berry. He's an entrepreneur. And uh, he's Mark Wahlberg's best. So, um, and he's also my, my buddy. So we're going to have him on the show tomorrow uh, at 1 o'clock. Oh, no, wait. Tomorrow at 7. I'll put up a, a, a promo. And uh, I'm looking forward to that. Again, we're going to have uh, uh, Senator Liam, I believe, on Thursday or Friday. And a couple other things that I will announce either today or tomorrow. But either way, I appreciate everyone watching. Thank you again. And we'll see you next time on Black Ball. Black 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 black
Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have faults. He had the same amount of faults as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. the blue hotel I wanna live at the blue hotel the podcast that goes everywhere the imagination dares it's for the open-minded the pleasure seeker it's Jeff Woods with the new podcast about relationships and sexuality, theme-based with special guests, the Blue Hotel Hotline, and every episode climaxes with an adult bedtime story. Get a room and listen in at the Blue Hotel. Begins Friday, September 23rd.